Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. For the past two weeks, and again today, we've been visiting with Jeremy Lent, author of the book The Patterning Instinct, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning, seeking to understand the ways of being and thinking that have led us to our current precipice, where a quite serious cultural and species crash could loom in the near future. The hope is, of course, that by understanding what got us here, we'll have a good idea about what to change and redirect to prevent calamity for both humans and the other species of Earth. Let's pick up now from where we left off last week, talking with Jeremy Lent about the different ways of relating to the earth that were part of hunter-gatherer humanity, and then agricultural humanity, and now high-tech humanity. Again, with Jeremy on the phone from Berkeley, California, he was saying, Virtually all of them, in one way or another, had a shamanic element, where the shaman would use different ways of changing consciousness either through uh, drugs or fasting or chanting, to move into the spirit world and to actually commune with the spirits and come back and communicate to their group what they'd experienced. You see that pretty much everywhere around the world in hunter-gatherer cultures. And just to be clear, are you saying that that coexisted with the hierarchical domination worldview that was part of how those cultures work? That's what's so fascinating. You know, we humans lived more than 95% of our history as hunter-gatherers, and hunter-gatherers did not have a hierarchical way of organizing themselves. Hunter-gatherers were actually strongly egalitarian, and they had no sense or very little sense of ownership and if they, if they were fortunate enough to get something that people valued, there was this deep expectation that they'd share it with everybody. And in fact, if somebody got a little bit too sort of big for their breaches, if you will, they used sophisticated social dynamics to bring the person back down again because they viewed you know, males who got too sort of big for themselves as real threats to their culture and the stability of their community. And that's how we humans actually lived for most of our history. And that's what's so fascinating. It was only really with the rise of agriculture and with what's called sedentism, which is, you know, the a change in lifestyle where humans actually settle down in one place that you see so many of the things that we take for granted in the human experience now, you see them arising for the first time. Things like notions of property, um, notions of hierarchy, of, of rigid hierarchies, notions of specialization. That's really kind of where the source of the patriarchy came, the differentiation between males and females, and that the males, as they got to have more power, seeing their females as the source of their kind of having the next generation that they could then have inherit the possessions that they had developed over their life. So all these separations and inequalities and the very notion of wealth only arose pretty much about 12,000 years ago in the human experience with the rise of agriculture. 
does this coincide with, I, I've heard, I, I don't know that I've actually read one of the books about it, but I've certainly read about the theories and maybe facts, maybe well-documented facts, that pre a certain point, there is more goddess worship. It was a matriarchy instead of patriarchy. There's there's some people who lean in favor of the ideas of the goddess kind of culture, which predated this period that we mostly are conscious of, the part of written history, where it's patriarchy. Yeah, you know, that is quite an interesting investigation. And it's hard to know exactly. But it does seem like in the very earliest periods of settling down with agriculture, there was more of a sense of a goddess orientation. There was still probably this recognition of almost like sort of Mother Earth and the notion of the earth as a nurturing mother and that that's what the real source of sort of power came from. And I think that as the rigid hierarchies of agriculture developed and began to grow from smaller communities into bigger sort of city states or, you know, one group conquering another and then becoming part of a of a larger and larger entity and you start to see the development of kings and rulers that's when I think you see, with significant increase in hierarchy, you see the patriarchy really taking over. So that by the time you get to large early civilizations, whether it's in China, North and South America, Africa, anywhere you look, you see them becoming distinctly, excruciatingly patriarchal at certain points. And we know this because of current existing groups. Our civilization has overlapped with a number of hunter-gatherer folks, and there's still some in the world. There's considerably fewer than there used to be. Is that how we know that that's how they were organized, the egalitarian-type principle? Is that because we've seen it currently, or is there archaeological evidence? Again, the archaeologists, Really, you get the most value when archaeologists and anthropologists kind of work together to sort of triangulate, if you will, because you're pointing to the two sources that we have to really know. I mean, one is to find groups that are still existing and understand them, and then to look at the archaeological evidence and try to see where they connect up together. So, you know, in terms of hunter-gatherers, anthropologists in the last century or so have done you know, extensive work looking at what, how hunter-gatherers make sense of the world. In, and, and I mean, today there's very, very few of them that have not been affected so profoundly by civilization around them that they, you know, we can't know what's true, what has changed, and what's real. But if you actually try to connect the dots and look at the whole picture of all different anthropological findings over the last century or more, you can begin to look at the common denominators and begin to make sense of it. So, you know, whether it's aboriginals in Australia or um, the few true hunter-gatherer tribes still in places like the Amazon jungle or the Inuit who anthropologists came across maybe a hundred or more years ago that was still living mostly untouched, you can really kind of make some sense out of what is a core hunter-gatherer worldview. And then you can look at things like cave art from, say, 30,000, 40,000 years ago and try to put those pieces together and, you know, form a narrative that makes some kind of sense. So we can never know for sure, but I think what I've tried to do in my book is really look at the best 
expertise in both of those kind of dimensions and uh, pull that together into a, like a coherent picture. And you get the same with agrarian worldviews. There, it's quite a bit easier because you get more and more archaeology and you get more, um, you know, some significant stuff that's gotten left behind by those major civilizations. So even the ones that are now completely defunct, you know, like ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia, they left enough that we can really get a sense as to how they viewed the world. Let's continue talking about the evolution of people's relationship to the world. At one point, you know, the earth is mother is the common thought. What comes next with agriculture? With agriculture, with the rise in hierarchies and ownership and patriarchy in the human social sphere, you see people making sense of the world by applying what they saw around them to their sense of the heavens. So you have these hierarchies developing where people believe they have to sort of treat the gods the way they would treat the kings around them and sacrifice and make them feel good and pray and tell them how mighty and wonderful those gods are. And similarly, priests would enter into the picture, along with specialization of other forms of human society. Priests would be a class that would be the intermediaries between regular people and the gods up in the heavens. So you see hierarchies developing both in the real world and in the spirit world, in the sort of mythological world that people lived in. And how do we relate to the world in that period? What's so interesting is that people also applied learnings they got from agriculture. So if you start to use agriculture to get your food, you sort of begin to realize that you have to work really hard and you have to do the right things in order to get the food you want. Whereas hunter-gatherers would tend to go, yeah, they just sort of enjoy whatever food was out there. If the food wasn't there, they would just, you know, move off to somewhere else where they found food. And things were sort of more like easy pickings. But because in agriculture, you have to work so hard to get your food, and there was a sense that you could make thing, make a better world if you tilled the earth properly or if you weeded properly. So similarly, there was a sense that this profound sort of responsibility came onto humans. So somehow through their prayers and their rituals, they would sort of keep the world going. So you see, for example, like the Aztecs actually believed that they had to sacrifice, they had to do these blood sacrifices in order for the sun to keep turning. And so this tremendous, the tremendous burden you felt you had, um, that the actual world is only going to keep turning around if you do the things that propitiate the gods. So each different culture had these different ways of feeling that you had to do tremendous sacrifices in order to somehow sort of keep the world working in a way that would help, that would um, benefit you. So that's why, in fact, the chapter I wrote about, the title of it is actually Agriculture and Anxiety, because it's when this kind of existential anxiety about the world and the sense that we could somehow affect our future uh, became part of the human experience. So we got stress out of this, and that's what we get from so much yeah, of our modern life. Exactly. You know, and folks, that's only chapter 5, page 103 out of this book, The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. 
woven throughout the book, Jeremy, is a whole lot of valuable thought about how we deal with language, how that informs what we think, how their environment informs our th- our thoughts, our language, and how that language informs our thoughts and behaviors. It's There's this feedback loop that happens. I found particularly intriguing the bit you mentioned about the Aboriginal tribe in Australia that doesn't have the words for together apart or left, right, or whatever, so that they use the cardinal direction. So they always know where north and south is, where a lot of us have to stop and think about it. It's just so amazing, so much, folks, that is in this book. And we're really just glossing just to get this in three hours of interview. And so I highly, highly, highly recommend The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. JeremyLent.com, Leology.org is the organization he's president of. You can find those links on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. I want to toss in as we go in and this development of dualism and how Western, Eastern way of thoughts, the Indo-European languages, all of that, how that is influential to today and how we're destroying the world, ourselves, the other species on the planet, and what we can do about that. And I want to bring in a name. He's someone I have had a desire to interview for the last six, seven months. I just haven't got around to it. George Lakoff. You mentioned him repeatedly in the book. Right. Could you talk a little bit about how his writing is relevant to what you're talking about in The Patterning Instinct? Yes. He's really one of the people writing in the modern world who has influenced me the most. George Lakoff is somebody who really developed a field of cognitive science in the last few decades called cognitive linguistics which sounds like a pretty scary term if you've heard it just for the first time. But what cognitive linguistics does, it looks at the ways in which the language we speak actually comes from and affects our sort of core ways of thinking. And what he discovered, which is really amazing once we begin to realize how it works, is that all of our abstract notions that we use in normal language comes from a scaffolding of our embodied experience. So as human beings, what we start off with is embodied feelings like high and low, warm and cold, hard and soft, things like that. And believe it or not, all these abstract words that we use tend to come from those embodied feelings to begin with. So I can say something to you, just a simple statement. I I can say about, I met somebody yesterday and she gave me a warm smile. Now, You know, we just take that as normal language. But then if you think about it, you realize, actually, she didn't give me anything. Her, You know, she just had a a certain facial expression. But I'm using that notion of giving as this kind of conceptualization of something, as a metaphor, basically. And when she gave me a warm smile, the smile itself didn't raise the temperature of the room, but it felt warm. So again, I'm using warm as a metaphor for something more conceptual. And then when you look at the biggest concepts in our, in our lives, um, you realize that all of these things are actually coming from our embodied experience. Even when I say when you look at something, you're not looking at it right now, but we're using looking as an embodied experiential metaphor for like understanding something in a broader way. And the reason why that's so important is that it turns out that cultures do the same thing. So that each of the cultural worldviews that I study, all the way back from hunter-gatherer times to our modern worldview, is based on these kind of core embodied metaphors. 
And some of those we've touched on. So we see hunter-gatherers with it, this metaphor of nature as a giving mother and father. Or we see agrarian civilizations with this metaphor of nature as this kind of hierarchy of the gods. And in both the East Asian culture and in the West, you see different kind of metaphors that, you know, that we're so used to them that they're almost like hidden in plain view. Like we use them all the time, but we don't even realize that we're using them as these metaphors for making sense of the world. So in our modern world, for example, one core metaphor we have is seeing nature as a machine. And another um, core metaphor we have is this, is this vision that we've been living by for the last few centuries of conquering nature. No, you know, we don't really conquer nature. We're not actually at war with nature. They're not really some other territory that we're trying to, you know, sort of beat in a war. And nature, in spite of what some people might think about it, is not actually a machine. It's very different from that. But because we're so used to using these metaphors, because they have worked so well for generations of people, we stop even thinking of them as metaphors. We think of them as being the actual reality that we live by. And that's one of the things that I hope to uncover in this book is that by recognizing the things that we take for granted as realities are in fact just metaphors, we also realize we can change those metaphors. And by changing those core metaphors, we change all the entailments, all the logical corollaries that come from that metaphor. And so we're getting up closer to our time, and so therefore the relevance to what's going on right now becomes more and more clear. But there's a significant difference about metaphors, ways of thought, the way in which we instantiate in our lives the conceptions that we have of the universe and how things rightly work. You talk about the Indo-European languages, the roots that end up feeding both India and Europe, Africa is included in there. And what happens over in China is a very different world. And I feel kind of bad for the Japanese who don't seem to be included in this. And there's other folks out there too. Could you talk about the difference in which our ways of relating to the world grew in what maybe we call the West versus in China? Yes, and I think that is one of the most important distinctions to make as we look at the big sweeps of history over the last couple of millennia and at different ways in which we can make sense of the world. And, and so I do often talk about not so much China but East Asian ways of thinking because these ideas that were pretty much rooted in Chinese thought did become central to most of what we see in East Asia, in Japanese, in what is modern Japanese and Korean and other parts of Southeast Asia right now. I think the big distinction is that coming from this core way of thinking from proto-Indo-Europeans from thousands of years ago, they, they were the people who actually ended up going into ancient Greece. And their thinking ended up as the sort of proto-source, if you will, of, of ancient Greek thought, which led to modern Western and Christian, uh, sort of historical Christian thought and modern Western thought. In the West, you see this dualistic split in um, understanding the universe, where you see for the first time, if you think of these agrarian civilizations that have, having a hierarchy of the gods, in ancient Greece, for the first time, you see people beginning to actually see the universe itself as being utterly split between some sort of transcendent source of meaning, where there's a transcendent God and some sort of ideal universe and a sense of 
everything being unchanging and ideal and the world being this kind of polluted, mundane sort of place where things come and go and things die. And they actually saw humans themselves as being split in the same way with a soul and body. And the soul was what was connecting us to divinity and eternity. And the soul was essentially entombed or imprisoned in the body, which was going to die. And that split way of thinking has been fundamental to Western thought ever since the ancient Greeks. But in East Asia, you see something very different. It's more like a continued development from those very early hunter-gatherer senses, everything being connected. So in East Asia, the core metaphor that I identify that all sort of East Asian thought is based on is the sense of nature as a, a web of life, like a harmonic web. And if you think of like, say if you're walking in the forest and you see a cobweb that's untouched and you, you imagine just a leaf or a drop of water hitting that cobweb, what happens? What you see is it kind of resonating. You see the whole web moving in flux to that one, one part of it that got touched because everything in that web is connected with everything else. And that's pretty much how the Chinese saw the whole world. They saw humans as being part of that web of life along with the earth and nature and with the heavens above them, which leads to a very different way of relating to things. Because if you live in a harmonic web of life, you need to be very careful that the things you do don't disrupt that web, don't sort of pull it apart. And you need to recognize that what you do has these all kinds of implications to other things around in that web. Whereas if you have that more Western core metaphor of seeing things as split, then you have a, different, a totally different way of reacting to nature. Nature suddenly becomes something that isn't intrinsically meaningful in its own right, but it's just this kind of mechanistic resource that you can apply your divine reason as they sort of thought of reason. You can apply that to try to manipulate and do what you want for your own good. And I do think that those two different core metaphors have been fundamental in leading to the two different directions those two sort of great civilizational complexes have taken. So the dualism you're saying, and I read this in the book, and again, folks, the book is The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent, that the dualism is not only Europe, but it includes a fair amount of India. So when we're talking about Buddhism, Hinduism, there is that dualism. The mind or the spirit is different than the body. And that really does not exist in East Asian in general. And by by in general, I, I don't know if this applies to the folks who are out on what we call New Zealand or Hawaii. I, I'm not really sure where their roots are. But East Asian folks truly, at least historically, didn't have this dualism that we have here. You mentioned in the book, by the way, you say that in the West, we consider the center of thought, attention, intellect as being in the head, but you mentioned for East Asians, it's different? Yeah, so that's just one great example of ways in which East Asian ways of thinking more embodied and less split between say, reason and emotion, or sort of body and soul, if you will. So actually, in traditional Chinese, like the, the Chinese word for what is translated as mind, the word is xin, 
but what Shin actually literally refers to is the heart. So when a Chinese person is talking about their mind, they might actually point to their heart because the Chinese saw the heart as being the sort of physical embodiment of what we think of as mind. And you can imagine, if, if you think of the actual heart as being the sort of heart-mind of the body, it leads to a very different way of thinking about it. Because when you have strong feelings, for example, you know, your heart gets to beat faster. And so you begin to sort of think of your cognition as being more embodied. Whereas if you think of your head as being the source of your mind, then you can see that as being more separate from the rest of your body. That's just one example of the ways in which Western modes of thinking emphasize separation, whereas the East Asian modes of thinking emphasize a more integrated, embodied experience of being in the world. I hope that you're absorbing all of these thoughts from today's Spirit in Action guest, Jeremy Lent, author of The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. We're going rapidly past a mass of research and thought that Jeremy has brought together, and we'll return to more with Jeremy after I remind you that you're listening to a Northern Spirit radio production called Spirit in Action. On the web at northernspiritradio.org, a repository of more than 12 and a half years of programs on people doing world healing work, like peace and justice, earth care, and many other forms of devotion to a better world. Of course, there are all kinds of links and further information about our guests and topics, plus a list of the stations across the country who broadcast these programs and much, much more like a place to add your comments to the discussion, enriching all of us, and an option to donate, which is crucial to keeping this work going, as we are not funded in this full-time work by either government or corporations, but by you, the listener. And while we will definitely appreciate your contributions, first, I want to make sure that you reach out to your local community radio station, the folks on the ground in your community who make locally relevant news and music available. You know that it's an exceptional gift that these stations and other local media sources bring to the community, so dig deep and keep them flourishing. Now we head back to our discussion with Jeremy Lent over in Berkeley, California. I hope you kept up with the incredible fruits and thought and analysis that Jeremy's been sharing. There's so much I want to draw out on this book and from your work, Jeremy. And folks, we're really leapfrogging kind of wildly past so much of the content of the patterning instinct. And it is important when we understand this big picture, we can change how we deal with the world. Dualism is a big deal because when we separate soul and body uh, and people start thinking like Plato or Aristotle, they're writing about the mind as being separated from the actual real world or it is extremely influential in terms of how we deal with our physical life or other species, the earth on which we walk. One little, and I'm, I know that this is jumping tremendously forward, Jeremy, it occurred to me that the Trinity might be a weird step back from dualism because, you know, there are three individuals, but they're one and all that kind of thing. And there's the human in this and the God up there. and But now we're really just three in one kind of thing. Although so much of Christianity has fueled this dualistic split, 
in some ways it could have someone could have at a certain point grabbed the concept of the trinity and converted it into a non-dualistic or non-trialistic or whatever it's called view of the world yeah i like that that's that's so interesting you know something again that is not normally obvious to us from sort of daily world is this recognition that I kind of trace in the book of how Christianity itself was very, very much a development from this Greek dualistic way of thinking. So it turns out, you know, the early Christian, the early church fathers, a lot of them took their ideas of trying to systematize the sort of Christian cosmology from ancient Greek thought. So Whereas Plato thought of some sort of transcendent world out there, it was relatively easy to map this notion of God and heaven onto that world. And where the early Greeks saw the body and soul as being these, this kind of split human being, so it was very easy for the Christians, again, to say the soul was that part of the human being that sort of survived after death and, and went to heaven, etc. But the, the thing is, to your point about the incarnation, if you will, One of the problems with a dualistic conception of the universe is you got to say, well, where does, how does the one, this kind of transcendent part of the universe meets the worldly part of the universe? There has to be some sort of connection between the two. And so a lot of philosophers over the generations have tried to come up with some way of explaining how transcendence meets the real world. And in a way, when yeah, when John came up with talking about the incarnation, and that was actually the only place in the New Testament where it was talked about, that was this amazing conceptual leap because it was a sense that there's God up there and there are humans down below and the two don't get to meet except through the role of, of Jesus Christ. There's been this kind of incarnation of divinity into the world and that's the kind of bridge between the two. And that's where this notion comes that uh, through somehow connecting with Christ, we can get to be part of divinity. What I find so fascinating there is that this dualistic conception of the universe always has to somehow find some way as to where these two different, fundamentally different dimensions meet up. And that's really the way in which Christianity kind of solved that problem, if you will. In contrast to that, a more integrated conception of the universe, like the East Asian sort of sense of this harmonic web of life, doesn't have this conceptual problem because it didn't have this, it didn't create this split that it then had to somehow resolve. It's this way of trying to make sense of things that I trace through the book to some degree and in terms of what's sometimes called the one and the many. It's this realization that humans have all the way from the earliest times to the present day that somehow all these kind of complex things of the world, the whole universe, is somehow there's a coherence to it. There's a certain oneness about it, and yet its ways in which it manifests is so differentiated. And how do you resolve the one and the many? And in some sense, you could see these different patterns of meaning that we create as being different ways to resolve this, this kind of ultimate conundrum of the one and the many in the universe. How has this worked out in specifically, I think, China, because it's a very big unified civilization so many thousands of years ago. How has this worked out differently in terms of 
how they relate to the rest of the world? Has it meant, because we're dealing with this harmony, has it meant a better way of living with what we call the environment, with the ecology? Has it meant a significant difference in thought in terms of how folks in that corner of the world have worked with other people, other species? These are great questions. And this, really the answer to these questions points to the complexity of everything that I'm describing. Because while I do show the difference between a Chinese or an East Asian conception of the universe as being more like this harmonic web of life, the reality is that when that the Chinese historically also caused massive imbalances in their own ecology when they wanted to do things like construct Great Wall to keep out the barbarians, they caused massive deforestation that led to horrendous floods along the Yellow River. So the point is that Chinese civilization itself has had as many historical examples of environmental devastation as other parts of the world. So you could, a simple sort of response to some of the things I describe in my book will be to say, well, I don't see any difference between Chinese history and the rest of the world. And again, in terms of conquering, you can point to different uh, Chinese incursions into Tibet in the West or into places like Vietnam and other areas of Southeast Asia and say, well, the Chinese conquered places too. It's not like they just were totally hands-off. So while these things are true, I do also think that there are some fundamental differences. And one is that the Chinese, while they did have their, they have had in history their bad experiences of conquering other civilizations, they didn't have this notion of using their power to exploit and disrupt in the extreme way that Western Europeans have had. And we see that in that earlier example we gave of Zheng He and his massive armada who didn't use it to enslave the rest of the area that he managed to discover and didn't use it to sort of create some sort of grand Chinese empire and nothing even close to that. And similarly, when the Chinese caused environmental destruction, it was done in a different kind of way. In just the way we talked about hunter-gatherers, creating imbalances when they came to different continents. So similarly, the Chinese caused these problems unwittingly. They were trying to solve a problem. They created a problem in doing so through their own power of just the millions of people they used to make something happen. But what they didn't do was to deliberately exploit the natural world to the extreme way that we have started to do in our modern world. And so you see something, what I find so fascinating, there's a letter written by a Jesuit missionary from around probably the 17th or 18th century um, who's in China. And he can't, he's so shocked because he writes about how the mountains outside of the city are filled with gold and silver. And he keeps saying to the Chinese, why don't you go and mine that um, to the maximum you can? You can make so much money. And he goes, the Chinese tell me that they don't want to mine it more than a limited amount because they're afraid that too much wealth would cause these imbalances and make the people haughty and then ignore their agriculture and so sort of destabilize their society. And he's just scratching his head. He just doesn't get it because that's not the way the Europeans saw things. So to me, that's one of these examples of how this different way in relating to the natural world 
ultimately leads to these different directions in history. You've said it repeatedly, Jeremy, and I'll just call it out here and just ask how this plays out. There is no black and white in terms of all ways of thinking or being or of activities or lack of activities. All of these things are a mix. And so I assume in Eastern Asia, there is maybe this embodied way of seeing the world, but there's probably portions of the population, maybe religious sects, etc., who don't see it with this united worldview. And it certainly seems to me that currently the Western way of thinking is widely spread in China. Does this mean they've given up this rooted, I think you described it eventually in the book as Neo-Confucianism, way of seeing things as connected, at all connected to this underlying truth that we're supposed to harmonize with? Was there a minority view that was traveling alongside that harmonistic point of view, and how prevalent is it currently? The thing that is so interesting about worldviews in general is that they can be very, very stable. They can last for millennia, but they also can change within a couple of generations when there is a very significant disruption in the power structures of a society. And so what we see in essentially virtually all of the traditional cultures of the world is when European imperialism came to dominate those other societies, we see new generations rising in these societies that began to reject the old ways of thinking about things because they saw them as being failures. So in China, even though they never got actually uh, colonized like other parts of the world by Western Europe, and they got deeply humiliated from the 19th century all the way to the early to mid part of the 20th century. And generations of and new Chinese intellectuals grew up looking at the old ways of seeing things in China as being responsible for this weakness and corruption that allowed these Western powers to take over. So as early as the beginning of the 20th century, you'll see Chinese intellectuals taking up Darwinian ideas and talking about the same things that we find so disturbing right now, like this notion of survival of the fittest is what it's all about. And for Chinese, you know, we need to get fitter and we need to get stronger to fight back against the West. And the reason the West have taken so much domination over us is because they've become stronger. We need to do the same thing. So that is where a lot of modern Chinese then began to reject their traditional ways of thinking. And during the Cultural Revolution, it got to be so extreme that really many younger, you know, basically Chinese growing up in this current generation are barely even aware of these great historical Neo-Confucian, the amazing philosophy and ideas that are their inheritance. But what is really interesting is that right now, And the current very powerful president of of China, Xi Jinping, has started to actually look back to Confucian ideas as a new philosophical source of modern Chinese way of thinking. So he's actually started to talk about this notion of an ecological civilization. The vision he's been putting out it sounds almost too good to be true. If you actually look at his speeches when he was just at the taking his new role as sort of head of the Communist Party just in the 
Congress just last October in China, he was talking about this ecological civilization as being one where we really respect nature, that um, as we develop our civilization, we have to be aware that we're integrally embedded and, and we're part of this harmonic, natural way of being. And it, it, the words sound almost as if they could have come from these traditional Chinese thinkers of a thousand years ago or so. So in fact, there's a question, is it possible that China is now actually going back to its roots and may potentially even lead our world as it gets to be ultimately before too long is going to be the biggest economy in the whole world. Could it be actually shifting us towards a more ecological worldview? And it's actually a question that I just wrote about in an article that I, I just published in EcoWatch a couple of weeks ago on this very topic as to whether this ecological civilization vision of China, is it just kind of greenwashing? Is it just basically rhetoric that shouldn't be taken seriously? Or is there some hope that some of these traditional Chinese ideas might become prevalent again in our modern world? I think we can hope so, uh, certainly because I think they have a more promising future for us. Because our time is so close to run out, Jeremy, I would wonder if you can say a few things about your hopes, aspirations, desires for the world, based on this 10-year search for meeting that you did in the patterning instinct. Because we hope that we, and we being larger than just humans, survive on this planet, that we don't lead to decimation of so much of the planet. Is there hope for that? And if there is, how do we get to that hope? How do we, what are the helpful, hopeful steps we can take? Yeah, these are, to my mind, some of the biggest questions there are out there. Which is why I'm crushing them into the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to at least end with these, with these profound questions so we can all think about them. And really, as I did the research for this book and looked at the ways in which these ways of thinking led to our modern world, the last couple of chapters look at where we are right now and where we might be headed. And one chapter looking at where we are right now is called Consuming the Earth in the Modern Era, which is what I really feel we're doing. We're, we're just um, overly consuming the world's resources at too rapid a rate. And there's a real risk, as I look at in our final chapter of the book, for a collapse of civilization or maybe some kind of split in human species, just like I talked about in that science fiction book, Requiem of the Human Soul, where most of humans are left to deal with the devastation of uh, climate change and a collapsing world when uh, the affluent minority lives some sort of genetically enhanced wired world, which I feel is a horrendous moral quandary that we have to look at really squarely. So the question is, is there hope for a more sustainable, flourishing future? I do believe that even though I, I can get very despondent when I look at what's going on in our world right now and look at the crushing devastation caused by the modern sort of transnational corporations and the capitalist model, at the same time, I do see the potential for drastic shifts in ways in which humans do get meaning from the world. I think that more and more new generations looking at the world right now are really questioning some of these fundamental elements of the world's view that have caused our civilization to go into these imbalances these last few hundred years. And my hope is that by actually 
reading my book, along with so many other things that are out there, offering alternative ways of making meaning, that new generations can actually look at meaning as more coming from our connections and seeing themselves as connected with each other and as connected deeply with the natural world to the point that there is no distinction between humans and nature. We are nature, basically. And really refusing to accept the value system that says we have to consume more in order to be successful in this world or whether we have to have more status in order for our lives to have any value. And I do think that just like we see the Me Too movement in such a small amount of time drastically changing norms of what we can expect from sort of normal civilized behavior, that we have the potential over the next few decades for people to say this is not acceptable. We need to live our lives in a different way, in a more connected way, in a more ecological way, and leading to fundamental shifts in our economic structures and our global political structures. And I think it all begins with the way in which we make meaning from the world in ourselves. And that's what I hope my book can help new generations to implement, to give us hope for the future. You know, it's so important to me, and I think your book does a magnificent job of pointing it out, Jeremy. Once we realize the soup that we're swimming in, we have the possibility of choosing to get out of the soup. And I think your book enables that. Are there any specific actions besides reading your book, which I think is a very good first step, that you would advocate that you hope are raised up or has the presenting of this, really this massive treatise on understanding who we are and where we are, is there something beyond that that you'd call us to do? Mm, yeah, well, the one thing that I would ask um, anyone who reads the book to do is just to really use it as an invitation to ask yourself, you know, where you make meaning out of the world and where are some of the received ideas that you have that maybe you took for granted that you can sort of think about in different ways and say, is this really helpful for myself to live a meaningful life and for the world in which I'm on to be sustainable and flourishing? And from that point, I do think that it is so important to recognize that we, each of us, are not just individuals, but we're embedded in this integral web of life around us. Part of that recognition is to realize that what we do with our community, what we do in terms of political engagement, and these are not things that are separate from our spiritual life, but they're part of our spiritual life. But in my mind, a truly deep and fulfilling and meaningful spiritual life is to be engaged in these kind of distasteful, like power and elements that go on around us, the political issues and the economic issues of the day, because we have to recognize that any affluence that we have in our society is often the result of exploitation of other peoples and other resources that may be very distant from us, but are still being affected by what we do. So recognizing ourselves as integrally embedded in what goes on right now and the future for future generations is what I hope people will do and act you know, accordingly from that recognition. There is so much that we've had to just jump over, Jeremy. Uh, the discussion about chaos theory and its ramifications, ways of seeing the world, is 
crucial to me, especially since one of my primary Quaker viewpoints on the world is that there is that of God in all. That's a phrase that we use. And what that means for me is something about this universality of the Spirit. So you talk about the incarnation. You're talking for me about we're all incarnated and it's all we're all part of the same stuff. I really regret having to jump over that in the book. I was thrilled to see not only writings about ancient Greece, but what happened in terms of Islam's time on the planet, where they were originators of a lot of early, very important scientific thought that somehow got shut down. And I feel like we're doing that right now in the USA, that it's getting shut down. And part of me is appalled at that, and part of me also says, well, maybe that's what's going to keep us from demolishing the planet. So there's so many wonderful pieces, folks, in the book, The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. His website, jeremylent.com, is on org. as is the link to the Leology Institute, which he's president of, leology, L-I-O-L-O-G-Y dot org. Again, come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. And Jeremy, one last question. You set out to find meaning in your life, purpose. That's what this tremendous 10-year-plus research has been in pursuit of. So is your life more meaningful now? It certainly feels much more meaningful to me, Mark. And I really do see, I've come to see meaning as really being a function of connectivity function of how things connect up. And I, I really feel gratified by the fact that my life does feel more connected and more meaningful than it did when I started this, this journey. So if anyone else is in that place that I might have been at 10 years ago and beginning that journey, then I really would like to say it can be really worthwhile. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Jeremy Lent. He's over in Berkeley right now, though his uh, original nest uh, till the age of 21 was in England. His MBA did not stop him from being one of the most profound philosophers that I've met, and you'll find it in The Patterning Instinct. Thank you so much for this devotion of caring for the whole connection that you've done by writing this book, Jeremy, and for taking this few hours to sit here with me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's been a great discussion. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The links to jeremylent.com and leology.org are on northernspiritradio.org, just as you'd expect, along with all kinds of other information about Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, Northern Spirit Radio, much more. I highly recommend this book, folks, because even having spent three hours with Jeremy, we've only scratched the surface of the riches in this book. We're on to some more folks doing world healing work next week for Spirit in Action, like some of the nuts and bolts of connecting with the earth through herbal medicine and learning about foraging, something that you might have expected was no longer possible, but it is, and it's good for all of us. Before we say goodbye, I want to share a song with you about the myriad wonders of the universe and a joyful way to connect to the all. It's called Creation is Laughing by Carol Johnson. Enjoy the song, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Carol Johnson and Creation is Laughing. Creation. 
Creation is laughing, it's laughing, it's having a wonderful time. Creation is singing, it's thinking of new things that it's never tried. Each little atom, each cell doing well with a life of its own. There is no chaos, creation has made us, and life is a sing along. Life with a reason, life with a song, lifting each voice in the big sing along. Life with a reason, life with a song, lifting each Music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 